it just occurred to me one of the things I could do is just sort of um, talk a little bit about a week in the life of an of a, um, international human rights lawyer. I always feel like it's a bit pretentious for me to refer to myself as that, but it's kind of accurate. Um, and just tell you what I was doing today and over the weekend, because it all involves pretty interesting cases. But um, let me just start by saying, um, as Professor Carey noted, I practice law at a big law firm in Atlanta, big corporate type law firm for, I guess it's close to 30 years now, or maybe it is 30 years. And um, in the last few years, I decided to devote my practice full time to pro bono. I had already established relationships. They may not know that term. Oh, pro bono, pro bono publico for the public good. So. Um, um, that means you practice law for the public good, and uh, another definition is free. You don't charge for your services. Um, now, we can talk about what the public good is, but people have been talking about that for, you know, ever since Socrates, so it probably, probably wouldn't be too fruitful to do that. But, um, but most of the big corporate-type law firms um, now have someone who does pro bono work on a full-time basis, and they do it by association with various groups like Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation, Atlanta Legal Aid, Georgia Legal Services Program, Southern Center for Human Rights, Georgia Justice Project, their ACLU, there, there are many, many of them. Um, and so you form relationships with these groups, and they screen cases for you. And then in my case, I take some cases myself, I try to get the junior people to take as many cases as they can because pro bono is a really good way for um, a young person to get in the courtroom and get some experience in a hurry. Um, you know, if you're, if you're representing Toyota, for example, um, you don't want a second-year associate to go argue against a class action that's been brought by everyone who thinks the value of their Toyota has been diminished because of the brake failures. Um, you want someone a little more senior to argue that case. But if you've got someone who's about to be evicted from their apartment because they didn't pay the rent because the landlord um, didn't do repairs and they need a lawyer to represent them, they got nobody and they're more than happy to have a first or second year lawyer do that as is uh, somebody who um, needs a lawyer to represent them on habeas corpus to try to get out of prison because of an error made during the trial when they were convicted. And so there are a lot of things that young lawyers can do uh, for clients who otherwise wouldn't have any lawyer at all uh, that young lawyers can't do um, when, you know, the firm is paying, paying whatever ungodly fee Toyota's paying us to do that kind of work. Um, so it's, it's um, a good opportunity for the young people. It's a good opportunity for the older guys who have been doing the corporate type stuff for years and would kind of like to do something a little more interesting um, in, the, in the last few years of their practice. So the, in the kind of cases I do, um, um, the cases that could be categorized as um, international human rights cases, at least broadly speaking, are First, the uh, cases of refugees in the United States seeking protection under the asylum law, under the Immigration and Nationality Act, or under the Convention Against Torture, which is a, uh, a UN treaty that has, has been implemented by regulation in the United States. Um, then the other kind of work I've done a lot of is war crimes tribunal work for the Special Court for Sierra Leone and for the International Criminal Tribunal tribunal for Rwanda. Um, then on more of the domestic side, uh, I've done a good bit of death penalty work, um, not trying cases, but direct appeals from cases where someone was tried and got the death penalty, or habeas corpus cases where they were tried, they went through the appellate process, but um, um, you can make a constitutional argument on habeas corpus that their trial violated constitutional standards and you can seek a new trial. So I do a lot of that. Um, and then I work with an organization that's located about four blocks from here, the Southern Center for Human Rights. And um, I do uh, work on prisoners' rights um, and that sort of thing with that organization. They've recently, um, in effect, won a, a major legislative 
victory, assuming the governor signs it, um, on amendments to the Georgia Fe sex offender statute, and that's going to produce some legal work for which the clients will not be able to hire lawyers, and it'll be a civil rights, human rights issue, and so uh, we'll probably start taking some of those cases. So I can um, I can talk about those cases as well, and anything that if you guys are more interested in one thing than the other, you know, I'm I'm happy to kind of listen to you and have you ask questions and interrupt me at any time. I don't really have an organized lecture or anything like that. But sort of to the um, a day in the life, if you will, or a week in the life. So I just came back from um, what is euphemistically known as ACDC, the Atlanta City Detention Center, which is um, you know about a half a mile from here, right across from the Garnett Street Station on Peachtree Street. And it is a facility where um, it's, it's basically the city jail, but most of the people in there are in there under contract with the federal government or either federal prisoners awaiting sentencing or immigrants who are subject to deportation. So my client today that I met with, and you'll be real happy to know this, um, I found out over the last few days that one of the junior lawyers that works in our other building in our Discovery Center, I don't even know if you know about that, is, uh, was a Cobb County policeman, then he became a counterterrorism agency with the federal government. Then he went to law school. He, his, his parents are both from Tehran. He was born in the United States. He speaks fluent Farsi, and he will be great in this case. So the two of us were there together, and we we're talking with our client, who speaks almost no English, and so this other lawyer in our firm was, was doing the Farsi translation. Um, and what happened to this guy um, it, it's, it's a um, fairly straightforward compared to some of the assigned cases. Yeah. Is the guy's name Cameron? Yeah. yeah. You know him? Yeah, I know him. He's sort of like my mentor. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So how did that come about? Oh, I'm friends with his son. Okay. You speak Farsi? Okay. Well, maybe we can we use you two. Do you read Farsi? Anyone here read Farsi? I could leave you some documents today that I need help with, because Cameron doesn't read Farsi. Um, but anyway, um, um, what happened? Yeah, I mean, see, I, I won't actually give you any documents. But these are some of the documents we went over with him. Um, this is his. Uh, this is his. It's all blown up. This is his identity card for a company he worked with um, in, in Iran, and they've misspelled his name here, which as it turns out when you try an asylum case, if, if somebody's misspelled your name somewhere along the line, the government will try to make as much out of it as they can and say that you're faking it and that's not your real identity. But you have to pull together. This guy came with no, no valid documents, so he, you, you, you contact people in Tehran and say, give me anything you got to show that this guy's who he says he is. Here's the lease for his apartment in Tehran. And um, again, this is blown up, but this is a, um, this is um, an, um, what would be the equivalent of a social security card in the United States. At least that's what he says. And then this is sort of, as I understand it, it's sort of an enhanced birth certificate slash passport. And I can't, obviously can't read a word on any of these things. And here's something interesting. You probably know this, but this birth certificate slash passport identity card gets stamped when you vote in an election. So you're carrying around something that proves whether you voted or not. And this guy's never voted. Um, until he participated in these demonstrations, he was, he was apolitical. Um, but this is kind of a typical story of the kind of cases we get. So he's in Iran, and um, after two weeks after the election, um, there was um, a big demonstration. And he had never been very active politically in his life. He had done some work, um, you know, he, had, he had, was involved in some internet chat rooms. Um, on political issues, and then one of the internet 
providers that he was dealing with set up the chat room said they wanted to put in a, a camera or a um, Skype type camera, you know, a mini camera on his computer so he could participate in, in, in that way as well. And that's when he said, you know, I don't think I want to do this. I don't think I want people seeing who I am when I do this. So that was the only um, activity he, he uh, engaged in in politics. He never voted because he felt the elections were always a sham. They were just, they were rigged to, um, to elect the incumbent. Um, and so, um, but in the last election it was sort of enough is enough. And so he went and he um, participated in the, um, in the demonstration at, how do you pronounce it, in Golub Square? Okay, the main square in Tehran. Do you know how to pronounce the main square in Tehran? It's in Golub Square. Okay. He participated in the protest at Golub Square, um, and on the Saturday, it was a Saturday that Netta was shot. So it was, and, and that was not probably not more than two or three kilometers from where he was. So it was a big deal, this, this de demonstration. And um, so they went from the square. Um, they were heading toward the metro station, and there was a besiege station. And as I understand the besiege, you can probably explain it better than I can, but it's kind of an informal militia that's, that supports the government. Not official police, but sort of an informal militia. Is that right? Yeah. Well, okay. they're sanctioned by the state. Right. And they, they have a hierarchy. Right. And see, you see how ignorant I am of all this compared to someone who really knows, but um, but you know, I go from this case to an Afghan case two years ago, to a Kenyan case earlier this year, to an Ethiopian case earlier this year. Um, I've got another Iranian case with completely different facts because it takes place in the north right near the Turkey and Iraqi border. And um, I've had a Malawi case, a Liberia case. And so you have to learn about all these countries. And I'm just starting to learn about Iran because I've got these two Iranian cases back to back. I can tell you a lot more about Liberia than I can about Iran. But then I try the case and a year later I forget it all. So. But, um, but that's why this work is so interesting because it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more interesting to me than figuring out why the accelerator on a Toyota sticks. But that's just me. Anyway, um, so he was at the demonstration and um, someone set fire to the Bassage station um, there near the metro. And so he was trying to get away and get out of the crowd. And the Basij, is, when you talk about the people, you call them Basiji? Basiji. But the station is a Basij station, right? Okay. We've just kind of figured that out talking to him today. But, I don't know more than any American correspondent. Right, there you go. But um, so anyway, um, so they started, the Basiji started shooting the demonstrators with paint paintball guns so they could round them up and figure out who it was later and arrest them. Does, is that true? Did that happen? Do you know? Have yes. you heard that? I've okay. Seen a lot of videos and stuff when they, there's a lot of videos on YouTube, you know, when this happened and they were trying to So have you ever testified as an expert witness in court before? Um, I have. Would you like to? Sure. Well, we'll see. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so, um, so he got shot with a paintball gun and there was a melee and there was chaos and, and one of the Basiji was hitting him with a baton and some baton came loose and he hit one of them out of self-defense and then ran away, got on the metro, went home, went to his apartment, changed his clothes, washed all the paint off. Um, and he, he shared an apartment with his brother. And so the next morning, Sunday morning, he went out to do some errands and while he was gone, the, some Basiji came to the apartment and interrogated his brother and his brother called him on his cell phone and said don't come back so he went and found a friend to live with um, for about a week during the course of that week his brother was taken and interrogated for two days in an effort to find uh, my client and so he decided to um, to leave and go um, to northern Iran where his parents lived and stayed with them it's the city of Marshan does that sound right Mashad? Mashad. Not Mashad. It's not Mashad. Mashad is, um, um, I've got it right here in his affidavit. Um, 
Mashad is uh, where Hussein came. That's uh, that's um, in the east. In the east, yeah. yeah that's on the east. That's almost on the border. It's with a huge city. Close. To, that's close to the border of. Um, sorry, I'm so disorganized, but I didn't really. Um, Moran, M-A-R-A-N-D. Moran is the city where his his he was from and where his parents um, lived. So he was going there to see them, and when he was on his way, they contacted him on his cell phone. And his mother said, your father has been taken by the Basiji and they're questioning him, don't come home. So instead he went to Tabriz and stayed with a friend in Tabriz. And after a while, he paid a lot of money, by the way, a lot of money uh, to a human smuggler to um, first take him across. And this guy said, I can get you to Canada. So he takes him across the, the, the border to Turkey and um, they make their way through Turkey, uh, end up in Damascus. They fly from Damascus to Venezuela. He's in Venezuela for six months while one of the guys that works for this human smuggler is trying to get him fake documents to enter Canada. Well, it turns out the guy's in Canada trying to get the forged documents and he gets arrested and, and, and he's you know, being held in detention, being charged with human smuggling. So, um, and these these numbers are astounding. He paid $35,000 to be smuggled to Canada. And so these guys say, well, sorry about that. We can't get you to Canada, but for another $20,000, we can get you to the United States. So he paid that. He basically wiped out everything he had saved in his entire life, and his family helped him. And he paid, um, um, paid $20,000, and that got him a plane ticket to Atlanta and a French passport. So, and he was instructed by the human traffickers, when you get to Atlanta, surrender your passport or destroy it, tell them it's false, beg their mercy, tell them you want to apply for asylum. That's what he did. So what happens in these situations is when you, you, you are classified by the government as an arriving alien, probably half of the cases I get are arriving alien cases. And so they detain you at the airport and they put you immediately into removal proceedings. Uh, basically, they say, they, they um, advise you of some of your rights. Basically, they say um, you're entitled to an interview before an asylum officer to determine if you have a credible fear of persecution if you return to your home country. Um, and if you pass that test, then you go on to the next level. You have a trial-type hearing before an immigration judge in immigration court. And so um, the way the um, process works is, so after he's interviewed, gets his airport interview, he, um, he gets um, uh, placed in detention. And he's, um, and he's locked up in basically jail until he gets a hearing. The first hearing he gets is um, they drag him into court, and they really do drag him into the court. They're all handcuffed, and there's a whole bunch of them, and they're all lined up. And uh, some of them are on TV because they're in court in Stewart, Georgia, or Etowah, Alabama. Most of them are from Central America and South America in, in those two. Most of the ones here are from what the, ICE, what the Immigration and Customs Enforcement actually refers to as exotic countries. So. Um, so um, you sit there in a the courtroom. You probably sit there all day, maybe, and the judge goes through one case after another and asks them if they plead guilty to entering the country illegally, do they concede that they are subject to deportation? And in 99% of the cases, they or their lawyers say, yes, but I want to apply for asylum. Um, and so the judge said, all right, well, then I'll set it down for a hearing. Now, we've got our hearing for this guy on Thursday. And so that's, um, what, the 28th or something of April. Um, and the judge will set it down for a hearing several months later. I'm guessing we'll get a hearing on the merits of his case sometimes in August, maybe even September. Um, in the meantime, we'll have to gather as much documentation as we can. Um, you fill out a form called an I-589, which is an application for asylum. You attach to it an affidavit, and we spent the last two hours going over a draft affidavit with him and, and refining it. You attach to it any documents you have that can prove your client's identity. 
um, and then um, then you submit your your I-589 and then about two weeks before the hearing you file pre-hearing filings where you basically brief the case and tell what happened to the guy and why what happened to him um, entitles him to asylum under under the laws of the United States and then you um, you add a witness list and um, and you usually have your client if there are any of your clients relatives in the United States or Canada who can travel to Atlanta you'll add them as witnesses to explain who he is and what they know about what happened to him um, and then um, if you're lucky and you can get um, a professor at a local university who is knowledgeable about the country and can talk about political conditions and history of the country, um, he is an expert witness, which Dr. Carey has done in, um, well, we've got one case pending right now, one case we did earlier, an Afghan case, and I think you're on board for this one too, uh, unless you want to be our expert witness. Um, so, um, well, I think that the judge is pretty much considered Iran like the axis of evil. I mean, I think so, too. And you, you may not need one in this case. I really needed one in my Liberian case, and I can talk a little about that case in a few minutes and tell why. Or are you gone in case I needed one? Yeah. I was going to ask, what are the, like, how, how do you prove that they're, I mean, I know you said docu documentation to prove their identity, but how do you prove that the story they're telling about why they had to escape is um, actually authentic? That is the key issue. And it largely boils down to how credible they are. Um, you know, the judge hears thousands of cases and he feels like he's a good judge of someone's credibility and can tell when someone's telling the truth and when they're not. Um, but, I mean, the most important thing is the judge like your client, that the client not exaggerate anything, not speculate about anything they don't know, if they don't know, say they don't know, and tell an accurate story about what happened to them. And then the judge, if they do all of that, and if the story is consistent with other sources, newspaper articles that say, yes, there was a demonstration in this square on this day, and yes, the police did shoot people with paintball guns, and yes, people were arrested after the, the demonstration, and yes, the Basegi did use batons. So if there's some objective evidence that the general event occurred, you introduce that. Um, and then, you know, ideally, um, if you've got another witness that witnessed it, well, you almost never do. But in this case, this guy's got a good friend in Canada, and he was communicating with his family about it. Hearsay evidence. You, you guys know what hearsay evidence is. I mean, you've seen enough TV to know. Hearsay evidence is admissible in immigration court. So I can bring this guy down from Canada, and he'll, he can say, um, yes, I, um, uh, I'm a friend of Mr. Client's father, and he and I have done some export-import business together between um, Canada and Iran. And I talk to him on the phone on a regular basis. And on... September on uh, June 21st of last year he called me very upset and he said this is what happened to my son so that's the kind of evidence you put in but at the end of the day the judge has the discretion to either believe it or not believe it and if he says well that all sounds like a very interesting story but um, but I, I I just don't find it credible therefore I'm going to deny it then that's what happens so in, in Atlanta, Atlanta's got the toughest immigration court system in the country, uh, just in terms of the judges. Um, they grant about 10% of the asylum cases that are presented to them. Nationwide, the average is about 35%. So they're not easy to win. Now, a lot of the cases, it may be skewed a little bit from Central American cases because a lot of the cases they deny are people who come up from Guatemala or El Salvador um, or Honduras or Mexico and say, um, I'm, I want to seek asylum in the United States because um, 
I was in a gang back in Guatemala, and if I go back to Guatemala, another a rival gang will beat me up and kill me, and the government is powerless to protect that. These judges hear that story so many times, and their mindset is, yeah, yeah, you just want to be up here working construction and making some money to send back to your family. You don't have an asylum claim, so I sent them back. But if you get a good, credible guy from, um, <coughs> from Iran, you can win the case. Um, the ones I've won have been Ethiopia, um, Afghan Afghanistan, at, at the immigration court level, and um, Liberia. Um, all pretty darn good cases for countries where, you know, people are going to be persecuted. You know, in a different, Guatemala may not be heaven on earth, but those three countries are in a different league from Guatemala or or um, Honduras, I think. You beg to differ? No, no, I'm asking a question. Yeah. Which is that, you know, if, in fact, the gang story, because it's prevalent, it's not very persuasive, but the you know, danger of being murdered by a gang member is very real if you happen to be in that particular situation. It is, absolutely. And there is a distinction that, I don't know if it's what the tendency is, but some judges presumably will say, if the government is persecuting you, that's a stronger argument right. than if someone in civil society is persecuting you, because that's just common law crime. And the answer is that the asylum law is designed for people escaping official persecution, not persecution by your, your relative, your neighbor, or your local gang member. Right. Yeah. The way, but the, the law is moving to recognize certain kinds of quasi-civil society persecutions or discriminations. Uh, as grounds for asylum. So I, I worked for a number of these attorneys, particularly in Haiti, and a year ago we won one case where someone was HIV positive. And another case we won, that we won in Haiti was someone who had been a drug dealer in Haiti, basically transshipment from Colombia to the United States. Uh, he was arrested by the, uh, not the FDA, but whatever whatever the drug agency is, the Justice Department. DEA. DEA, sorry. Um, and then, you know, he turned state's evidence, and they said if he, he said if he was being deported, his drug dealers would kill him for being, you know, a canary, for, for talking to the feds. Uh, and we won that one, too. So it's, it's not impossible. The other point, of course, is that a lot of the Central American cases, because Nothing makes success like success. Nothing beats failure like failure. It's hard to get a lawyer to take a case, certainly pro bono. But even very inexpensive rates, you know, if you know that the judges are always going to rule against you. And so even though among that group of 200 or 400 or whatever, there's going to be five or six people who probably do have a pretty decent case. But it's it, very difficult for them to even get an attorney who's willing to invest an enormous amount of time, right. paperwork, etc., cost. And I'm just guessing that you know Bill's firm puts in the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars. I don't really know. But I don't know. I, I I've got statistics somewhere, but um, a large amount of money for these cases. And it, you know, in some sense, these are the exceptions that prove the rule. That you know, you've got to have a slam dunk, unbelievable set of facts, like being, being beaten up in Tehran, or any of the other cases that Bill will tell you about, uh, even to get a lawyer, let alone win the case. Well, here's here's my philosophy about it. I personally don't want to take any cases that I don't think is a really strong case because I want to maintain my credibility with the judges. I'm seeing these same judges every time I go down there, and I want them to know when they see me walk in the courtroom, I want them to know that, you know, this is a case I've got to pay attention to. Um, if I were doing this for a living and somebody would pay me 5000 bucks to try a case for a Guatemalan and I need 5000 bucks to pay my bills this month, then I'll take the case. But, you know, I'm paid a set salary for my law firm to do this work free, and so it gives me a tremendous advantage, um, both in terms of the types of cases I can take and how much time I can devote to them. You know, a lawyer who does this kind of work for a business for, 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 um, to earn an income will take a case and say, okay, well, if I spend more than 20 hours preparing this case, I'm going to lose money on it. I, 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 gotta, I gotta limit it. I can spend as much time as I want on it. It just depends on how many other cases I have and juggling my caseload. 
so that's not an issue for me. Um, so it, it's 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 sort of one of the things that's endemic endemic in our society, and it's in this too. If you've got a lot of money, you can hire a really good lawyer. If you've got no money, you can get a really good pro bono lawyer. But if you've got enough money to afford a lawyer, but not very much, so you don't qualify for pro bono, <coughs> then you you know you end up getting the worst representation. I, that's you know. That's an issue, but I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Well, when, when in the immigration court, is there uh, a prosecution representing the federal government? Yeah, the, the, the opposing lawyer is a lawyer for um, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, they've got a huge caseload. They'll come in to the courtroom with, um, on a master calendar day, they'll wheel their files in and it'll, you know, it'll take up from here to the wall. And they go through these cases, and but there's not a whole lot to do on master calendar. Um, although sometimes at master calendar, someone will say, um, "Your Honor, I'd like to take my client would like to take voluntary departure. Under some circumstances, you're entitled to voluntary departure. So that means rather than sitting in jail until some ICE agent comes and claps you in handcuffs and takes you and sticks you on an airplane, you know, with with maybe two hours notice, um, you get out of jail, you have a certain amount of time to make your arrangements, you fly to where in the country you want to fly, you get met by the people you want to get met by, um, but you have to pay for it. Um, the government gives you a free airplane ticket if they deport you. Um, so sometimes an issue will come up, you know, judge, my client wants to take volunteer departure, well, does the government have any issue with that? Well, if the government thinks a person might be dangerous, they don't want them out sitting around waiting for voluntary. So the government lawyer has to know a little bit about a whole lot of cases. Now, when it comes down to trying a case at a merits hearing, that is the hearing that the judge sets at the master calendar hearing, the government lawyer, some of them will pick up the file a week before and read everything. Some of them will pick, up, pick it up the night before and flip through it and go through and wing it. Um, they never call a witness. I've never seen the government call a witness, uh, but they will vigorously cross-examine your client and your witnesses to try to find inconsistencies in their story. Um, here, here's an example. Um, one of my law partners had a case for someone from the Ivory Coast, and um, there were all these documents that, uh, that said something to the effect that um, that this guy had been beaten and there was an injury on his knee. And it turned out he was beaten and there was an injury on his elbow. And he got into courtroom and um, showed the injury and, and the judge said, well, this all says it was on your knee. And the explanation was it was a mistranslation from whatever African language he spoke. I don't think he spoke French, although he could have in the Ivory Coast, but it was a mistranslation from from the um, um, African language he spoke where the interpreter got uh, elbow and knee mixed up or wrist and knee mixed up, whatever it was. And the judge latched onto that and said, well, you can't tell your story consistently from one time to the next. How can I believe anything you say? So the government will go after every little inconsistency they can. When we're talking to our client today, he, he said, um, um, I called my parents um, from Turkey and told them um, that I was okay. They said not to come home. I called them from Turkey and said I was, they said I was okay. And of course, all this is going through a translator, and I don't really know what the guy's saying, but that's what the translator says. I said, wait a minute. So he was probably using a cell phone. He probably had um, an Iranian SIM card in his cell phone. An Iranian SIM card won't work in Turkey. He would have had to buy a Turkish SIM card in Turkey. He's just crossed the border in a mountainous area in the middle of the night. How could he have possibly called back? And the, and the interpreter went back and said, oh, oh I, I misunderstood. He said, I called my parents and said, I was just leaving, I was almost to Turkey. Well, is my guy lying or not, or was in an error with the translator? I personally think he's very credible, and it was an error with the translator.
But um, the, the more I do this work, the more I understand how difficult translation is. You know, and this goes to the other thing I was doing this weekend is working on my report for the um, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where a lot of the issues involve translation um, and work language assistants did in translation, translating witness statements from Kiryawanda to English. Anyone in here speak Kiryawanda? Ah, got you on that one. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, um, you know, you, when, when you you read a transcript of a trial at the ICTR, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and there's a question in English and answer in English. You all think that's very nice. Well, you think the lawyer asks a question in English, translator asks it in Kiryawanda, witness answered in Kiryawanda, the translator translated into English. But it's not that simple. I mean, you're all over the place. You know, you ask a question, and you sit there listening to these guys talk for, it seems like, a half an hour trying to figure it all out. And then he comes back and says, well, what he says was this, that, and the other thing. And the possibility of translation errors is huge, especially when, when it's, you know, languages that, I don't know, this might sound biased or something like that, but somehow it seems like it's easier if you're dealing with French, Spanish, and English than it does with ang languages with completely different structures and completely different sounds and different alphabets and different characters. I mean, I mean, like my, my guy was, you saw the, the, I mean, it's one, my translator today could, could speak Farsi, he can't read a word of it. And you look at it, you know, you can sympathize with someone who speaks only English looking at Farsi, you don't even know if you got the page right side up or not. And so um, translation errors can be a big part of this. So in preparing your witness to testify in an asylum case, if, and a lot of them speak English, but if they don't speak English, you have to be really, really careful and to make sure you get everything just right. Yeah? Um, being that Georgia's in the lower percentile of states that, I guess, grant asylum, um, is it possible to have a, a reset or are people um, have to be tried in the state that they were captured or surrendered in. Yeah, if you're in detention, they will almost never grant you a change of venue. Almost never. Um, um, and we've had cases where relatives are in Baltimore, which has a good court, or someplace else, and we filed a motion for transfer of venue, and the judge says, it's up to ICE, and you know ICE is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It's up to ICE where they want to hold them. We're going to try the case where ICE holds them. If you want to ask ICE if they'll transfer them, fine. And, you know, asking ICE to do anything is just banging your head against a wall. Um, so that case is going to be tried in Georgia. If they're not in detention, and I guess I can talk a little about how you end up in this situation and not be in detention, um, then um, if you can make a good case that that you ought to be tried somewhere else, and you're, you know, you know, um, I, I can live with my brother-in-law in Denver, and um, all the witnesses in Denver, all the family members who saw what happened to me, are in Denver. Will you transfer it to, Ven to Denver? Then they will. They'll grant you a transfer. Um, but the um, I had pulled out the I-589 application, the application for asylum, just to read from it. The um, the, the basis under which it can be granted asylum. And this is all spelled out in the statute. And when you, um, when you try a case, uh, you have to decide uh, which bases you're going to claim for your client. But before that, they have to check them on the form on this. And so it is, oh, I might have gotten these all out of order because I was going over, oh yeah, okay. I'm seeking asylum or withholding of removal based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group, or I'm seeking relief under the United Nations Convention Against Torture. I'll talk about that in a minute. So you can't just say, well, the government doesn't like me, I don't know why. It's got to be because of your race, and race is interpreted broadly to include ethnicity. So, you know, if if um, during the Rwandan genocide, um, if, if you were a Tutsi um, and, the, 
and the Hutus were persecuting the Tutsis as they were, that would have been a basis for, um, for um, asylum. Uh, religion, um, and some of the Muslim cases are religions, uh, religion because, um, um, what's his name, Hussein was a Sunni, and the, I mean a Shiite, and the um, Pashtuns were all Sunnis. He had a religious claim among his claims. Um, nationality, you know, um, you really never see in a nationality case, but um, I guess if you were uh, Armenian and you were a, a nationalized, <coughs> naturalized Greek citizen, then maybe you'd have a claim or something like that, I don't know. Political opinion, now that's what this guy's claim is. He's never been very active in politics, but he expressed political opinion by protesting the elections. So political opinion is one of the reasons. Um, my first asylum case was a woman from Uganda who supported the losing presidential candidate, um, Colonel Besage, um, when Museveni was reelected for his second term as, as, um, as president, and her husband did too. And they got in big trouble because her husband was actually working for the, um, I forget what you call it, it was effect, uh, the Secret Service under Museveni, but in the meantime, he was supporting Besage, Besage who was running for president, and they caught him. And uh, he was ultimately, he was off with, with um, two of their children to go visit his mother, and he was ambushed and killed, not found until several years later, and the kids were found in an orphanage. In the meantime, our client had come to the United States and sought asylum. One of her daughters was left with her mother. Now all the kids were with the mother. She's got asylum. She's still here. She's trying to get the, the money to bring her kids over here. But, um, but she was active politically for Colonel Besage. She loaned him his car. He gave speeches through the sunroof of her fancy car. Um, he was a business client of hers when she worked for a petroleum company in Uganda. So that's, a that's an example of a political case. Um, membership in a particular social group is a really interesting one. And um, I, I would also argue that my Iranian guy has a membership in a particular social group, mainly those who protested against the election. Um, the typical cases of membership in a particular social group, well, you can make out a, a case for gang violence as a, as a membership in a particular social group, members of X gang or those who refuse to join a gang, that's a particular social group. Most of the case law under particular social group has um, involved uh, gender abuse issues. Um, women who are subject to uh, gender abuse and are, are kind of banished because of the abuse of a particular social group. So I'll tell you a story about one of my other cases, and this is... Um, I have one, too. Okay. You want to tell it? Well, it's a case that uh, was referred to me by game on a Pakistani woman who married a Kenyan diplomat uh, to Islamabad. Um, they were transferred to Kenya, uh, where she discovered this guy had lied about four, three other marriages that he had. He had told her that you know he was the, she would be the only... Uh, husband, and then there was domestic violence. Uh, she has, uh, escaped to the United States to pursue uh, legal uh, studies, and uh, this guy said that uh, she wants she, you know, if, if, if he doesn't come, she doesn't come back, she'll uh, he'll get even with her. And now she's her visa's run out, and she's threatened with deportation. And he said that. He, she gets to Pakistan, she'll call up all of these uh, Pakistani friends that he made when he was there, and they're going to throw acid in the face and disfigure her, which is something they do in South Asia quite frequently, and other types of threats, uh, and ordered her to come back to Kenya to be his wife, even though he admitted that, yes, he did lie to her about the other marriages and the other children. So she's applied under social class. Right. Of domestic violence. And, you know, it's interesting, that's a, really a civil society issue. I mean, he does... It worked for the uh, Kenyan government, but it's not the Kenyan government that's persecuting her, it's here. But the, the, what the law says is um, if you have a fair persecution for one of the five reasons that I listed, by the government or by someone the government is unwilling or unable to control, then you have a case. Now, it's much easier if you can make out a case that it's by the government. Um, and um, 
Well, my, my uh, domestic violence case will make that point, point. then I've got another one, one that I lost, that I can illustrate the, by the government or someone's government's unwilling or unable to control point. But um, my, my case was a woman from Malawi who lived in a, you guys know where Malawi is, a small, poor country in uh, East Africa. And, um, and she lived in a rural village in Malawi and sort of a mud hut village and in northern Malawi, which is, is really rural compared to Blantyre and Lilongwe, which are in the south. Um, but um, so she lived there and she married a man and had a perfectly good marriage and had three children by him. And then um, one day his, her sister's house caught on fire and her husband went in the house to try to rescue her and died in the fire. Um, so she was forced to marry her husband's brother, which is, it's called paterlineal marriage, I believe. Um, and, and it is a custom and practice in Malawi and other African countries that once you marry into a family because of the dowry, um, you become property of that family. Um, so she was considered property of this man's family, so she was forced to marry um, his brother. And he was, and she became his third wife. And um, he just abused her something terribly, and um, and treated her treated her terribly. And um, on one, and she finally had had a um, a child by him, and it was a girl. And he was very upset with that. And said, "Why'd you give me a girl? I want a boy. I don't want this baby girl." And so. Um, um, shortly after she had given birth, he tried to have sex with her again because he wanted to have a boy, and she resisted him and cried out and screamed, and her son, her teenage son, by um, her first marriage came in and tried to save her, and her new husband killed him with a spear, stabbed him in the chest with a spear, and then proceeded to beat her with it, and beat her so bad that she had to be taken to the hospital, so um, they went they, they lived near the um, Tanzania border and they went to a hospital in Tanzania and she was hospitalized there until she regained her strength and then she came back to um, Malawi and in the night took her children and went through the bush and this time swam across the river to Tanzania before she was being carried on a stretcher on the bridge but escaping she, she couldn't go like that and she even tells about how her um, her oldest son had to watch for alligators and or crocodiles I mean and tied rabbit meat to their arms so that when the crocodiles attacked them they would eat the rabbit meat and wouldn't, wouldn't hurt them and she still has some scars where the crocodiles got her as she, as she went across but anyway she brought the family across and um, and um, Settled for a while in Tanzania, trying to eke out a living, making baskets and selling fruits and vegetables, until a, a human trafficker brought her to the United States and said, you know, I can get you a job taking care of children, you can be a nanny and so forth, and got her false documents and she came here. The story gets really, really murky at that point as to whether she was being brought here for basically forced labor, um, doing elder care and child care and so forth by someone who would pay her pittance and, char and she'd be working for an agency that would make most of the money or whether it was for sexual reasons. But um, she ultimately claims that she was sexually abused and she escaped from the place where she was staying and, um, and found a South African woman living out in uh, Gwinnett County who uh, helped her file an application. And so in her case, um, she voluntarily applied for asylum after she had already been in the country. She wasn't caught and put in removal proceedings. She came forward and says, I'm here, I've been here several months, I'm here illegally, I want to apply for asylum. So in those cases, they don't put you in detention. It's, it's an affirmative application. You go before, appear before an asylum officer, and the asylum officer can grant it, and it's over and done with. You never have to go to immigration court. Had she not done that, had she been gotten caught, um, had she gotten a traffic ticket or something, and the police pulled her over and figured out she was illegal, 
and then they had arrested her, then they could have put her in detention, and then she would have had to been subject to removal, and it would have been a defensive asylum application like my Iranian clients, and, and even after the asylum officer's approval, you still have to go before an immigration judge and, and try your case. So, but her case, th those are the procedural differences, but her case um, was a, um, a case of membership in a particular social group. And I had an expert witness from Malawi um, who has become a very close friend since, but she's a woman who, oddly enough, a woman who grew up in Atlanta and Knoxville, Tennessee, and went to graduate school at Michigan State, which has one of the best African studies programs in the country, and then moved to Malawi, settled in Malawi. Um, and she um, married a man who is half Malawian and half British. She adopted two children from Malawian villages. And my expert witness in my earlier case, my Kenyan case, said when I contacted him, said, who can I use for a Malawi case? He recommended her. So she um, interviewed the client by telephone, and we had a continuous email correspondence, and she prepared um, a um, affidavit for the for the client after interviewing her. And so she was the expert witness that testified that the government condones this. Um, the government in the village where she lived would be run by a headman or a chief of the village. Whatever the chief says goes. The second husband was very close to the chief. He was basically one of his lieutenants. The husband and the chief supported a particular political candidate um, that was elected. And um, the government, and this whole practice of having to marry another male in the family that you originally married into is condoned by the government. And so the government is unable or unwilling to prevent this kind of abuse. And she went on to say, if she tried to move back to Malawi and move into another village, no village would accept her. She would be shunned because of what happened to her and because she is the property of another man. So while we couldn't make out the case that the government itself was persecuting her, we could say that she was being persecuted because she was a member of a particular social group, women who are subject to domestic violence, and um, because of that social group she was in, the government was unwilling or unable to protect her from persecution, so we won the case. But that presents much more difficult legal issues because of those two points, which can go either way on those points. A judge could go either way on those two purely legal issues, whereas the Iranian case doesn't really present any legal issues. I mean, it's clearly a case of political persecution. It presents factual issues. Is the judge going to believe this guy or is he not going to believe him? So that's, um, that's sort of the, the way the cases go. One other real quick one. What, what, how, when does class end? 115. 115, so 15 minutes. Um, have any of you guys seen the movie The Visitor? If, if you have any interest at all in this, you ought to see it. You ought to uh, get it on Netflix or whatever. Um, you probably just get it online. Um, but it's a, it's a really good movie, and it, 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 it tells about just what happens per chance to people who are in the country illegally, and that's what happened to my client, Al Glay. Al Glay is from Liberia. Real interesting case. Have they studied Liberian Civil War at all? No. Okay. Well, I'm sure you know that there was a civil war in Liberia, and the, the two forces that were basically bat battling each other to simplify a little bit were being led by uh, President Samuel Doe and Charles Taylor, who became president um, after Samuel Doe was killed. And um, my client, Al Glay's father, was a senior general and aide-de-camp to Samuel Doe. Well, you know, if, if, if you rate brutal dictators on a scale from 1 to 10, if Charles Taylor was a 10, Samuel Doe was probably an 8.5 or a 9. I mean, neither one of them are, you know, real nice guys by any means. So, um, so a lot of bad stuff happened during Samuel Doe's administration, and my client's father caused a lot of that bad stuff to happen. And, um, um, you know, a lot of people were killed and tortured and so forth under his watch. But just before the Civil War broke out, um, uh, my client's father 
said to his wife, take the kids and get out of here, go to the United States. And um, his wife was actually a, um, uh, the youngest daughter of, of, um, of uh, Tubman, William Tubman, who was also a president of Liberia, uh, but one of the more progressive, one of the better presidents of Liberia that ultimately died of old age and unlike most African presidents wasn't killed in a coup or many African presidents, shouldn't generalize. But um, so they came to the United States with their family and the kids applied for, a, applied for um, some kind of status and all the kids became legal except my client Al. And that, but Al got married to an American woman and so that allowed him to apply for legal status but he didn't stay married two years, he got divorced and um, his proceedings, his marriage proceedings, you know, his legalization proceedings were terminated but Al is Al. I mean, you know, he wasn't going to worry about it. He was playing college football. He was playing junior college football. He's a great guy, but he's got your typical, you know, jock mentality. Hey, I can handle it. I can take care of everything. So he never bothered to apply for any legal status. Um, and he also got caught one night in a bar in, in um, Silver Springs, Maryland, or some, something like that, in a, in a minor scuffle, just a minor fight. Um, if it had been handled properly by the, by the um, public defender, uh, it would have been pled for disorderly conduct. But when the judge, uh, judge offered Al a guilty plea for assault and said, um, um, but I'll get you a lawyer if you want. No, I can handle it. I'll take it. I don't need a lawyer. So that's Al for you. So he, he, he makes two huge mistakes in his life, and he's about to make a third. So he's back in South Carolina playing junior college football at spring break. Doesn't have a driver's license because he's illegal. He's driving home. Uh, he's going home with his buddy. His buddy's about to fall asleep and says, Al, I need you to drive for an hour. And of course, during that hour, Al's a little over the speed limit. He gets caught by the South Carolina State Police. He gets put in detention and in deportation proceedings because he's an illegal alien. And I mention that because there's a very similar story in the movie The Visitor. He gets hauled off to Alabama to Etowah. He's put in. He's put in proceedings, and um, and and basically, um, uh, okay. And so, the the first issue that comes up is that there's certain things that bar you from getting asylum. You're barred from asylum if you don't apply within one year after you're in the in the United States. He's barred from asylum. The second thing you can get is something called withholding of removal. It um, it's, um, doesn't give you as many rights as asylum, and ultimately if conditions change in your country, you can still be deported, but it's pretty good. Withholding of removal is pretty good. The third thing you can get is protection under the UN Convention Against Torture, which gives you the least amount of rights. You can be deported to some other country that's willing to take you. and. Um, if conditions ever change in your country, you can be deported and you don't ever have to be let out of detention if all you get is convention against torture. So the first thing the judge says is, <coughs> well, you're barred from asylum if you apply with over a year or if you've been convicted of an aggravated felony. And you're barred from withholding of removal if you've been convicted of a particular serious crime. First thing the judge says, I want briefs on whether this aggravated assault, this assault is a particularly serious crime. Well, if it turns out it's a particularly serious crime, he's, he's gone. He's back to Liberia. He's probably not going to get a Convention Against Torture claim granted now that Alan Johnson Sirleaf is president of Liberia. So if he had gotten a public defender in that case, and gotten a plea of disorderly conduct, it would have been neither an aggravated felony or particularly serious crime. Many, many immigrants get into illegal legal problems. I mean, you know, it's just hard not to. A lot of them don't have much money. A lot of them need to get to point A to point B, and they don't have a driver's license. There are just a lot of little things. A lot of them don't have a place to sleep, so they're, you know, loitering and trespassing on public property. A lot of them get into legal problems. And if any of, oh, and a lot of them, 
including the other client we've got coming up on um, June 11th now, do little drug-related transactions, right? And those can get you in big trouble, and they have immense implications for your immigration status. And unfortunately, a lot of public defenders don't know that, and they'll plead the wrong thing when they plea bargain for your client, and it screws them on immigration, even though they think they've gotten a great deal because they've got a suspended sentence for whatever crime it was. So anyway, um, Al, um, fortunately, we briefed and argued whether it was a particularly serious crime, and the judge agreed with us that it was not. So Al was, um, uh, um, could apply for withholding of removal, and he applied for withholding removal. We, we tried the case. We had a really strong case. I had, uh, as my expert witness, I had the director of the Liberia program from the Carter Center, who goes to Liberia three or four times a year, knows everything about Liberian politics. Um, I had a um, witness in Liberia who knew all the players, and um, I got an affidavit from him, and my local expert witness interviewed him. And really what the story boiled down to was this, because Al's father committed these atrocities. Anyone who is still in the Samuel Doe camp, I mean in the Charles Taylor camp in Liberia, and a lot of people still are, would have probably killed Al if they found out who he was when he went back. But there was also a very strong suspicion that when Samuel Doe was killed, Al's father set it up and told people in the Charles Taylor camp that President Doe was going to be this place at this time, and then he headed off to Ghana and, you know, was out of there and used it to save his butt from what he saw was a coming, you know, coup on behalf of the Charles Taylor trial. So if Al ends up hooking up with any of the Samuel Doe loyalists who were still there, and there are some there, they would have killed him. So it was a kind of a complicated story, but a very, very interesting story. Now, we've got a really good government in Liberia now under Ellen Johnson's relief, but it's fragile. She can't control these elements that are still out there. And their people, the guy who actually killed Samuel Doe, a guy named Prince Johnson, is in the Senate in Liberia right now, even as we speak. He's a, he's a senator in the Liberian Senate. And there are other examples you can give. So that really became a, a fascinating case, too. But those are the kinds of cases. We're almost 10 minutes, five questions? minutes. Questions? People have questions? I didn't get to any other stuff I did. Yeah? I know that, uh, at least I think, the immigration court is a federal court, but it's a specialized court. Are there, is there an appeals window, or could the Supreme Court choose to hear a case that might have problems? Yes. Um, you, you appeal from immigration court to the Board of Immigration Appeals in Washington, and if you lose there, you appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals where you're located, which would here be the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which is not a good court to be in. We have one right now uh, for a South African woman who married a Rwandan Hutu, and that's where her problems lie. Um, and then um, from there, the United States Supreme Court can grant cert and has. There's some significant immigration decisions in the United States Supreme Court. <coughs> But the other thing I've done, and just to, in the day in life, I spent um, <coughs> this weekend working on my report for Rwanda because um, I was um, in Rwanda earlier this year um, interviewing witnesses, and I've done this for the Special Court for Sierra Leone too. There are two rules. Um, rule 91 is a rule against perjury, and Rule 77 <coughs> is a contempt of court rule in both cases. And if someone's sus suspected of perjury, um, the court can appoint a special counsel under Rule 91 to go investigate and, and make a recommendation as to whether they should be prosecuted. And if someone is um, suspected of coercing a witness, intimidating a witness, disclosing the identity of a witness who has been granted the right to testify under anonymity or something like that, then they can be subject to contempt of court under Rule 77. So I had a Rule 77 investigation in Sierra Leone last year, and this year I have both Rule 77 and Rule 91 investigations um, in Rwanda, Tanzania, and Burundi, and I'm, I've, I've had three different reports to do for, that, for the latter, and I'm down to my last one, and I was just kind of 
fine-tuning it um, over the weekend, and I have two more people I need to interview by telephone um, in order to just tie up a couple of loose ends, and I'll be done with that. But that's really fascinating work, too, because you get to travel to an African country, and you have investigators you ride around with, so you're not too scared. And um, you know, you go to these places. Like I was in Batari. Batari was a university city in Rwanda where a lot of the genocide took place. And, um, and my case involved a lot of hospital workers at the university hospital who were, um, who were many of them killed, um, raped, um, disfigured, and so forth. And the, the issue was to what extent was the mayor of Butari, a man by the name of Kanabashi, um, responsible for that? To what extent did he endorse the interim president's instructions that that kind of conduct took place? And, um, and the witnesses that I've been interviewed um, in some cases have been accused of manufacturing false testimony against Kanabashi. And so that's sort of the basis of why I was over there. Now it is 1.15, or two minutes away. Um, any last questions? Well, let's give uh, Bill Hoffman a round of applause. I think that you know, this is an example of what you could do on the side, at least as a lawyer, if you decide to go to law school. You, know, you, don't, you can, uh, now it's much more acceptable in a law firm to get, and even get credit from a law firm for doing pro bono work. But you also could do an immigration uh, practice, again, not with the flexibility that Bill enjoys, but still you come across some pretty desperate people willing to spend a life savings to, to escape persecution. And, and uh, it's, it's an area of the law that you know is open to anyone who goes to law school. And thank goodness we have attorneys out there in the country willing to work on a free time or even full time on these kinds of issues. Okay, thanks, and we'll have to start promptly at 11.59 on Wednesday if I'm in court and we can start right away.